All right, welcome to the episode of Magic Podcast. This is episode 10, so you'll want to be a DM. Uh, this is Dungeon Master Eddie, and here is a friend I've not seen in quite a while, uh, Dungeon Master Tom, who, uh, after I had ran my first campaign, uh, that I should eventually name since I keep referring it as the campaign that went from 1 to 20, um, Tom then took over and ran a campaign. Uh, so to understand why this was such a big deal, I'll have Tom introduce himself and talk about his introduction to Dungeons and & Dragons and, and where he was up to being a DM for the first time. Thanks a lot, Dungeon Master Eddie. I uh, hope that the if there's any ambient noise, uh, people will forgive it. Uh, Eddie has been very kind to record outdoors for health reasons, my, my health interests, so much obliged on that. Certainly. So... Take us back to the beginning, the first time you played Dungeons & Dragons. Well, the first time that I played Dungeons & Dragons, I was probably like 13 or 14. And uh, the DM for that campaign, if you want to call it a campaign, was a friend of mine who uh, was like part of a large Irish Catholic family. And they just, you know, it was everything out there was a little bit wilder and a little bit more uh, intense at their house than it was uh, at mine. And so dangerous things like role-playing which you know could have potentially been satanic according to my parents uh were tolerated and uh or well i don't know maybe maybe his parents didn't actually even know what we were doing up in his bedroom <laughs> that is entirely possible because uh, they had their own issues but um it was always a lot of fun when i went over there and so we were using second edition i was a player and uh it, we met sporadically and it was kind of uh, capricious but uh I do remember, I think Thaco was, so that was second edition, right? Yes. Uh, let's just say that our grasp of the rules was not ideal, uh, but we had a lot of fun anyway. Thaco, two hit armor class of zero. At that, that's, a, that's a bit of the way back machine, even more than other things recently. Like I, <laughs> I, I remember, if anybody who's old enough to remember that age, uh, when we started playing in high school, it worked that I was the clean-cut guy, so I was the one they brought around to talk to the parents who said, isn't this the devil's game? And it's like, you know, my parents look at me, right? Too lazy to, to play the devil's, devil's game, right? This is this is just fun sword and sorcery kind of stuff, King Arthur and all that. And make-believe. Make, yeah, right, this is this is make-believe for uh, teenage boys. Right? And it's not, and believe me, we're not crazy enough to make-believe the stuff you're, you're worried about. Like, we grew up, we're white kids in the suburbs, right? What could we possibly imagine? Uh, so then later on, I, I had run some games, and I remember inviting you to the table, and you're like, all right, let's 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 do this. And it, it, it became memorable because that first campaign, you know, everybody started at 1, and we played through, and we got to, we got to 20. We got to go through and fight um, the big bad end guy at the end. It was a 12-hour, more than 12 hours because we started before noon. That got done after midnight, right, and everybody was just dragging by the end of it. So let's let's. What was that experience like? The first time you got to be in a, a campaign that was consistent. Oh, I think it was amazing. So we were playing three five at that time, and I was you know obviously new to that rule set, and uh, I remember uh, secretly getting the PDF to the dungeon master's guide and printing it out at work on a work printer, so that I could read it if I didn't have my computer because you know it wasn't like these days where everyone just has a computer on their in their pocket. Uh, and so I was, I was like enthralled, right, yep. with the idea. It was incredible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you did a great job of, I think, the world that you created in that campaign 
was rich and varied and all that stuff, which is great. It's, it's a, uh, I think you've mentioned several times in other episodes that it was a homebrew mm-hmm. for you, and that always tends to be that way. But um, I also think one of the best things about it was it was actively dangerous to the players <laughs> at any given moment. I, at least from my perspective as a newbie, felt like my character could die in any session. <laughs> you did a great job of kind of like conveying that this is, you can't just do whatever you want, player. Pay attention. Don't do. Don't make dumb mistakes because you will be punished. Actions have consequences. <laughs> Actions okay, you have need, consequences. Which I, I always, <laughs> as we talked about Drew in a previous session, it's always all it's funny compared to the how is this my fault, right? This is none of my responsibility, and and the chaos that came from that. Could we digress for a second about that? Because you've mentioned sure. it several times on yes. different podcasts about Drew's attitude, and I would just say from a from a DM perspective as well, yes. it felt like. Um, and maybe we might be able to talk about this a little more in a second, but you know, because I was new at DMing when I did do my first campaign, there was the players were so much more seasoned at the rule set than I was. Mm. It also kind of felt like, oh, if a character dies, it's not even that big of a deal. And so there was almost no disinhibitor. Yes. To just doing the the like lowest percentage wildest thing that a player could imagine, you know, their character doing. And I do feel like there was some other. Uh, player characters on the table at your first campaign that occurred too, but for me, I was timid. I was yeah. I, I was conservative. I, I think of I, I think and like we can get into one of the war stories that Jeff and I might have discussed. Um, I don't know if it's one that I posted yet, but I I think of of the things where I can I can say the party. We think of what happened in Seattle. Just for a lot of us, it's just we just those words. You know what I'm talking about. I think for us from your first DMing thing, do you remember the Seal Team Six moment? Uh, well, yes, because you've brought it up multiple times. I can, I, how could I ever forget it? Uh, where, you won't let me forget it. Yes, I, I will not. I mean, it worked out so perfectly. And I, I think as we talked about it, I credited this to you because you had, I don't know if she was going to be the, the BBEG, but she was this, this dedicated antagonist. And we found, dare I say, the hole in the plot armor to get to her. And in, instead of having her just find some magical deus ex machina way out, right? She took that lightning bolt in the face like a champ and just went, the end, and then you, you built it out so there was still more to do. Like, we didn't, it wasn't a, aha, we did this, the campaign is now broken. But it was one of those so well planned that if around is six seconds, within less than half a minute, we had dusted her entire entire group. So let's let's talk about that. From your perspective as a fresh DM and you've got your plans, you've got yeah, here's this yeah. this well laid thing. And like they just come in like like the bad batch, the shock troops. These are the Avengers showing up to some B level villain's place and just mollywomping everything. Like that. What was that like? <laughs> well okay, I, I should just mention too, you know, that was the first campaign that I had ever run. Exactly. And uh, I've learned a lot. Uh, since then, I think, both as a DM and a player. So I would say that my reaction at the time, I, I would not react the same way that I, that I did then today if I, was, if I was running that same campaign. But to me, it really spoke to my anxiety of being in more inexperienced than the players at the table and feeling like, oh, it, it was a failure on my part because... I wasn't able to see the rule set as completely as the as the players, and so then they did something that um, I hadn't considered. Now that was my reaction then. Mm-hmm. So I think nowadays, if I were to run something similarly, 
I would try to, um, I would try to maybe con- like look. Players will always think of something that you haven't considered. <laughs> it is not a DM failure. <laughs> exactly. It is just part of the game. And uh, but for a, for a DM like me in particular, who really likes to have the world built out meticulously and have different you know corners for people to explore, um, I had to learn the hard way that you can just leave some of the spaces blank and the players will mm-hmm. fill it in for you. And that's okay because sometimes some of the things that they discuss about what could be over that hill or what could we do? Could we scry the bad guys, you know, lieutenant or whatever, you know, whatever it was. Like, you, <laughs> yes, don't, have was. To, you don't have to have thought of that stuff, right? Like, they can, and then you can be like, hmm, you know, neutral face, you know, thinking, yeah. all right, well, that is happening because that sounds awesome, right? Like, <laughs> but they don't know that you hadn't considered that. You know, you don't have to let on that they were the first people to, to put that into your brain. So, you know, your rule of cool, the idea that, you know, the DM should allow things that are awesome. I think especially when you have players who are thinking smartly, players who are putting in the effort um, to, 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 like, consider, you know, strategy and things like that, really you should probably try to reward that. Yes. And uh, if that means getting, you know, a really amazing moment of, like, you know, the, the, the big guy going down uh, really quickly or whatever... You know that is, I think, totally fine, and you gotta you gotta let the players have that. Um, so I think, but tell me this, Ed, Eddie, mm-hmm. I think yeah. there's a, uh, for me, and I'm never I was never quite sure how much of it is for you as a as a player now, and and yeah. put put your player hat on and then shift around for yeah. for the DM hat. How much of doing something like that as a player is about like, oh my gosh this is going to be an awesome story and how much of it is like i know i've caught this guy with his pants down <laughs> i i think as a, like you know with your dm hat on at the same time oh yeah when i think about it there's a at some point down the road i'm gonna i'm gonna talk with somebody uh about the idea of why we play why we come to the table mm, yeah. and i think when when that happened you mentioned there's 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 a couple things that happened there's Oh my God, we we've got we got a chance to do something nutso, which I'm yeah. pretty sure was me and and was Jeff. And there's the we got a, we caught him with a pants that we're gonna punch him in the balls, which was Drew, right? <laughs> Let's, that that was very that was as, as much as Drew gets. Um, and and there's there's a different perspective. Like there's you know it's it's do you feel that this is like if I'm a player, am I trying? Is my motivation to try to beat the rules or beat the game? Yeah. Right? Versus yeah. is this a collaboration? I'm just. I am helping to write this story, and I get to do something so brilliant, something that that in theory is, you know, potentially above, you know, what you would expect of my character. Like, and if, if we look at any of my characters, they've all been intelligence focused, right? So that I, I'm not out thinking. I, the player, I'm not out thinking my character. The capabilities are there for them, but it's the I can do something crazy like this. But it's it's finding a way to adapt to exist in, in that world because in fairness that that party that did that great thing did ultimately get wiped out because we followed the lead of an overconfident moron in the party. This was Drew leading us. We can go take on the vampire lick at like eleventh level. We got this. Oh yeah, that was a real. I didn't I didn't know how to dissuade you. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it was a little bit difficult because you guys had had some kind of crazy good successes, and I can understand why. You know, a uh, portion of the party was kind of optimistic, but you know, I, I wanted you can't step outside as a DM. Like, you can't be like, well, let's time stop, guys. This is a level twenty character. I have it built. You could you could take you know the character on, but 
I really don't think it's a good idea. Right. right. Yeah, you, 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 like, in theory, you shouldn't do that, but the problem you run into is even if you say that, like, player, the histories of the players in other games come into play. Because as it had, it had come through with some of us, like, Druid, like, we got this. Like, you could tell him it's all this and how it, it's programmed. You know, as a vampire lich, he's a, he has an answer to everything you do. And it's, it'd be like, oh, we got this. And my, stupidly, myself, after there, there was a session that got split where Drew and I uh, were playing by ourselves as a pair of dwarves. He was, um, like, melee-focused. I was the wizard. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we went into the Frost Giant Temple. Yep. Where we're dwarves against giants, and we're, we are as players really good with what our characters do. So, we like we did so much damage in this temple, where two things two things of note happened. One, we each got smited for 150 damage and lived. Hey, uh, aside to that, I think I owe you a direct debt of gratitude for the way in which you envision holy spaces for like you know divinity within the game yep and how i I don't know if this is like i don't want to get psychological or whatever i don't know if this is part of your personal like history or something i just love how it's like oh no 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 if you're not respecting this space of of like even if it's an opposing deity yep it is it is the dm's job to make you understand that this is a divine area this is a holy space you cannot just come in and do whatever like you need to treat it with respect or you will be smitten. Yes. And I just love that. So thank you for I was, that. I was I was an altar boy in an Eastern Catholic <laughs> Orthodox church for many years. So, but like yes, the the idea of being smitten even by priests smaller than me was was ever present. Right. That that did help do that. So we 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 actively, blatantly was as disrespectful as we could to the this this temple to the. So he just threw down the most powerful frost spell, just 150 damage to each of you. And because my, I built my dwarf wizard on the idea that wizards just die because they don't have enough hit points. So I made him a dwarf, dumped everything in constitution. Toughness, feet, all so, that. So the dwarf took 150 on the chin and he was still alive. So even then, going through this, we then finished off everything and into a point where we came out of a, you guys alone here on this encounter, I nearly gained two levels. Drew did gain two levels. And then we come back to the party and all of a sudden, yeah, we're, we're up here. Time for you guys to catch up. Um, so we had that sense of that, like we're we're invincible, right? We are Owen Wilson at the end of Shanghai Noon, you know, when all the bullets missed him and went through the coat, and he's standing there in the church. I'm invincible, and we had that idea in our head combined with Captain Overconfidence Drew, who led us into this thing. And ultimately, I, I credit you because it it was very simple. There's one, there's going to be overwhelming numbers, but two. Like, the real threat was a wizard who could do the AoE damage. So all they did is they held back and they kept counterspelling everything I did because he, this villain observed everything we did and knew what was what was in the bag. He knew all of our tricks. So And it was frustrating as hell for me at the time, but as I look back, it was the absolute right way to play it. Hmm. Right? It's like, you dressed yourself in metal spiky armor and you tried to hug a, a transformer. Right? What did you think was going to happen? Well, we found out. At the time, as a player, did you did you feel like that was like somehow the DM metagaming, or did you? Oh no! I when I because I guess it's because I've sat on the other side of the table. Okay, right? I understood, especially with this ancient vampire who was a thousand years old or whatnot. I understood the idea of the lich, and I, it might say it in in the monster manual three five. It's it said it in a different monster manual that as you come at it, if you're running a lich as a DM or anything that's an ancient villain. Uh, uh, from from that's lived so long, uh, 
right? They have the power to to they've like they've seen it all, right? In theory, nothing under the sun is new. So you just have to do what you do better than anybody else. We didn't plan for that. We were just like we were chaotic good. It's like we just whatever we do, we win because we're awesome, and that's been the end of it. So as we come in, like I could appreciate that he he outthought us. He prepared better than we did, and we just we were basically just running straight and just diving right into the wood chipper because it's not going to chew us up. That was the thought. So I was frustrated with what happened, but I was more frustrated that I was stupid enough to just just let Drew build me up and be like, "Yeah, we got this. Okay, we got this. We can do this. Let's just let's go right now." So it's kind of like I feel like there. That's a really great illustration of like the tension between different philosophies of DMing. Because you could say the rule of cool and be mm-hmm. like, look at the cojones on these guys. Oh, my goodness. Or you could say, hey, mm-hmm. actions have consequences. And, you know, I mean, everyone is somewhere on that spectrum. Oh, granted. So I've, I've played with DMs where, and I've tested the waters on this, where it just, we couldn't fail. And it got to a point where I do obvious and blatant, like you could put a four-year-old at the table like, don't do that, it's stupid. And I'd do it. And there'd be no consequences. And if you don't have consequences, you the part of the tension is what makes the game fun. Is this going to work? Right? If you know like if you're gonna if you turn yourself into a Mary Sue where everything works, right, then it, it stops being fun. Like that's that's where the dice come in and help because you aha, look, I got this super hoozy crit on this guy. I'm it's a times four crit, blah 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 blah. I rolled a one. Take four. Right? And Okay, like there's the, the great equalizer. So if you don't have that, you know, if there aren't consequences, is if there if there isn't a chance to fail, it just doesn't it isn't fun. Right? At least to my perspective, I realize people feel differently about that. I agree. I, so this is interesting. I think this might be. I don't know how much you've talked about um, fifth edition. Not yet. Not much. You know, but it is. There is much less of a high variance uh, around you know death okay. and, and uh, kind of you know the ability to. You, you, everyone can heal so much. It's almost like you don't need an actual healer uh, in the party. Uh, but anyway, yeah. that's a that's a different different question. But I do. It's interesting because I think that in some ways, the games that I've played in Five E have actually been more fun, but less. It felt like there were less stakes, if that makes any sense. Yes, exactly. So it, it might depend on what your motivation for playing is too. I think people who this is just a guess. Players who are more enfranchised are more interested in a game that rewards skill and experience, that means there needs to be a consummate amount of risk if you screw it up, yep. or what's the point, right? So that would be how I would frame it, and I think that people like Drew and you, who've been playing as, as players for years and years, then expect some amount of you know balance. Now, of course, there are always going to be some players that say, they go into the mouth of the, you know, the, the demon, and then say how could I possibly be responsible for this yes <laughs> but you know yes that's, that's, that's just, <laughs> uh, I, I think back to you know if we're going to talk about like DMs taking it on the chin we talk about the rule of cool it's a story that another story I'm not going to let you forget is you, you got to run it like the the second time you ran a campaign most of the same players at the table we got to go from 1, one to 20 and we'll, we'll talk more about this campaign because there were there are a lot of things you did that Weirdly, I had never experienced in 30-some years that were brilliant. Really? Like, letting our characters walk away and come back. Like, the, like mm. Victor being there at the beginning, being there at the end, missing large chunks of the middle. But we... Something I had mentioned in one of the other podcasts, 
and it became what I called the DM time stop because <laughs> the bad guy would start monologuing, I would start playing Ace of Spades by Motorhead, which was cue the music roll for an issue of Let's Get Him, and then we'd have the DM time stop because I wrote this damn monologue, I'm going to read this damn monologue, partly because you need the information, but partly I put time into this, you're going to listen to it. Now, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go I was going to say, because what, what's the, like, uh, what was your perspective? Because you're the one writing these models, and we're the ones that, you know, very, that's boring, let's fight, right? We roll the dice and start rolling and be like, <laughs> stop. No, 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 no. Let me give you some information, Ed, Eddie, that might be uh, uh, a surprise to you. I have never played with another group that has not allowed the DM to have a bad guy monologue. <laughs> never in my life have I have I played with a group of players who are like, screw this guy talking, I attack before he can finish. Do you know what I mean? I just yeah. feel like there's a cultural uh, difference when you watch a movie or you play a video game and there's a cutscene. You know, like whatever it is, like at least the first time through, you let you you hear the information, and you might even be bored internally. But whatever, eventually you're going to get to the fun part, and it maybe makes the game richer for people who care about the story. So, I just feel like in that particular campaign, I needed to set some boundaries <laughs> around what players could do and what they couldn't, and just for the benefit of the players. Who, let's say the benefit of the players who actually might have enjoyed the story. Yes. They, I didn't want to shortchange them versus the people because it only takes one player to veto <laughs> the, you know, the monologue feeling, when they're bored. Feeling, feeling guilty about this for some reason. I can't remember why. Carry on. So I just wanted to provide that little bit of perspective based on the story from, mm -hmm. that you had told in other episodes. So as we, like, the. The big, the big ending to that campaign. We finally got to twenty. We're facing the elder gods. Yeah, I get to go first, set up my round, and then we have the moment where I, I set this character up to to do a crit. He was from the Book of Nine Swords, so he could use two maneuvers at once. And it's, it was a weird conglomeration of rules at the end where I could hit him, do Constitution damage, and the rule from the class was I could add my Wisdom to any damage roll. So I'll add it to the Constitution damage roll, and then the other maneuver is just do a hundred damage. Don't add any modifiers to it. So I hit the big bad guy on what for the rest of the party is turn one, because there's a time stop involved. I hit it for 40 constitution and 200 damage, which is is huge. Like the, I, I, Ideally, it's 40 constitution is going to wipe this thing out. And you were very, from that standpoint, it's like, okay, no, he does not take the constitution damage because that, you know, it's just blatantly cheesy. And I, I can't argue that, right? The idea was I'm going to sweep the leg out of this. Uh, but then it's like, all right, I get my 200 that's, that's more than 95 for this colossal guy. I get my massive damage set. Oh, yeah, I remember this. And you had your flashing D20 from Think Geek or whatever. You roll, it hits a 20, it flashes. And I always bemoan the fact that it should flash when you roll a 1 because there comes down the dice for this DC 15 massive damage saving throw, and it stops, and there's that 1 <laughs> pointing up. And Jeff falls out of his chair laughing. Pond's losing it. Caleb doesn't quite understand what's going on. Like, I've got my shirt over my head running around your kitchen just, go! <laughs> like, your wife is just, yeah, that's normal, right? And this, like, comparably to when my campaign went to 1 to 20, and we were there for over 12 hours. Here, like, we started at 5, big bad guy's dead, it's 5.15. From that perspective, where you're gearing up for the big, the big finale, and this is, if I'm going to think of a movie, it's Indiana Jones, and you got the big sword fighter guy doing all this stuff, bang, you know, scene over. That, that's my comparison to what happened. As 
I have been I have been fortunate that sitting I've never been in the DM seat for that to happen. He's come close, but I've never had that. What was that like? You know, it's funny because I kind of had forgotten about it until I listened to your earlier episodes. I, you know, I think that balancing that type of an encounter is really challenging uh, because you want there to be something really terrifying. Mm -hmm. And you also don't want to wipe the party. And I think 3-5 is great in a lot of different ways, but... One of the areas where it really began to break down a little bit mechanically was at the higher levels. Oh, yeah. It was very difficult to balance, and you could only do, you know, a certain number of things. And again, this was kind of my first time, uh, my first foray. So, you know, ironically, by that time in the campaign, I wasn't as hard on myself if, you know, a player got, you know, kind of a very clever situation. And, and I had, you know, already kind of said, you know, I, I've decided that, that a creature, this immortal is not going to take any constitution damage or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I think um, if this were 5th edition I don't think that a 1 would be an automatic fail and a 20 would be an automatic success or something like that. I can't quite remember. Yep. But um, you know, prob probably like from a game design perspective it's not great when you're um, when, you're, when your bad guys ha can just have a chance of like dying five percent of the time whenever they roll so i don't i don't necessarily think that that's like a on the dm uh you, i could have and and the other thing is like our group because we have had and franchise players who knew the rule set so very well i also didn't feel like it was fair to like fudge the like game mechanics even if i like very clearly signaled it to you guys ahead of time because it would be unclear. I couldn't, like, come out without breaking the fourth wall and saying exactly what was different. And so I just... There wasn't any good way to, like, you know, kind of, like, avoid that possibility without just being kind of a jerk about it. Like, you know, the whole rule of cool, right? Yep. We, you know, that is a time when you really do want a player to feel like, you know, they, they did something amazing. The only thing, that really at that point, the only thing that you're worried about as a DM is did the other members of the party get cheated at the table? This is true. Because they were really excited, and then they never really got a chance to interact with the big bad guy. So from that perspective, it might have been maybe helpful to do, you know, to have some, some kind of backup plan or have the, have the immortal creature die but then some, you know, something else happens, and there's another yep. thing that comes up, you know, mm -hmm. so that you get your sweet, awesome experience, and they still get to fight something. Um, you know, I probably mm -hmm. wasn't at the level where I could have thought of that in the moment, but that might have been a, mm -hmm. an elegant solution that where everyone wins. Yeah, I like. I'm thinking how I'd try to, to pivot with that on the other side. It's I've, I've had to deal with that recently with with the. The, the one issue that 3.5 had, and a lot of these games will have as, as time goes on, is because so much material comes out, every combination can't be play-tested, and things will get missed. Like, in that situation, I built my character, Victor, that going into any major battle, he was a glass cannon. He would, he would have his big first one, two or two turns... And then all of a sudden, the, the gas tank is running low. Right, he's, he's all in on the beginning, and it was he was like a, a Mike Tyson. You get past round two, you've got a shot. 
right? And he, he had demonstrated that in some of the battles where, yeah, if people got past round two and then things weren't going well for him, maybe the team had to be there. Um, but when I think back to that campaign, one of the things that, that happened is with the way the story went and, and how the party cohesion was going, uh, early on, my character Victor walked away. Yeah, yeah. He did. And then we, there was a bunch of characters who showed up who, who just, I, I hadn't got the feel, played very stupidly, they died. A lot of characters died. In that you had interim. some bad luck, I mean, but, you know, yeah. Anyway, and there yeah. was the occasional dumb choice, which even, <laughs> I, I remember those too. And then the second character came in, Kubrick, who was there for that big chunk in the city. And then I realized when the adventure was then leaving the city where he had been a very powerful force, it was like, all right, he's going to stay behind. And then there were more characters. And then eventually we got to Kavik, who was the the paladin monk devout guy helping the party, you know, through and then and then Victor came back at the end after after what Kavik did. And and to be able to to play those different characters over the course of a campaign that long where the the memorable characters had an impact on the story didn't die. Like to such a point, I think Pond, playing his an illusionist, was the only character who went every session. Like, that character was there at the start, he was there at the end, and it was the only one that didn't do it. Um, so what was what was that like when it when the character rotation started happening? Um, what, from your perspective, what was that like? Because I've, I've never seen that from the other side of the table. Um, yeah, I mean, it was definitely unique. I think uh, for, specifically for Victor, um... I thought that that was a pretty creative player solution to the fact that, you know, he was a challenge to be around the rest of the party as a, as a character and as interesting, and I think he was an interesting character as he was, he was better in small doses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having having that decision, I mean, because you kind of, you know, made that decision. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, so it wasn't like I, I had a lot of control over that part. Um, it, it kind of made sense. and. You know, frankly, the most challenging part of that everything that you just said there—that kind of mm -hmm. the arc of of your character choices—was the middle parts that you skipped over, which is all these characters are dying. I, as a DM, am I really uh, getting Eddie what he needs as a player? Because it doesn't seem like this is working very well, and I worried about that. So you know the and the, oh, I guess there isn't one other thing that I would say too. As it became clear that, you know, Victor was still somewhere out there in the world, um, it was kind of nice to have messages come back or to have kind of, you know, interaction where, you know, the party heard rumor of these other characters that yes. still existed, that were still alive in the game. And there was a really strong tension for me as a DM to want to use them to, as, as kind of like, you know, plot devices to move, move the story forward. But I also really was very acutely aware that they were still your characters, so to speak. You know, mm -hmm. you um, had a character like that, and I think Caleb did as well. Um, okay, we'll talk about Caleb's, because his was an interesting, a brilliant, <laughs> yeah. the way you put it into the story. But anyway, I guess the point was, like, I, that, to me, I spent so much time consulting with, with the players. Is this in character for your, for your character? Or you know, would it would it make sense for your for your character to do this? But trying to be vague enough that it didn't um, tip off the player to you know what that might look like in the plot. So it was kind of like a little bit of a back and forth. Mm -hmm. I felt like there was almost like a little bit of a co ownership between the character and I, 
that to me, honestly, was the part that I was the most proud of, was really trying to delicately balance. Uh, I have an idea for this, this, but it, I can't, I can't own it entirely. Mm-hmm. This is something that we need to, we need to do together. And it was a neat little proxy for like the whole process of playing D and D, right? Because that's kind of what it is. Yeah, it's it's a, the goal. Like I've always thought that the best is when it's a collaboration. This was a great yeah. example of it being collaborative. Yeah, where we're all we're all contributing to the story in some part, and it's I guess there's a different perspective because you talk about how you felt felt guilty that all these characters were dying. What what I did from a player standpoint, once I realized, all right, Victor's still part of this. He can come back someday. This is my opportunity because as as a DM. Like the one thing that comes up is just all these great player ideas that you never get to do. Yeah. Now I get to do it, right? Because if they die, I don't care. Victor's still out there. Then Kubrick is still out there. And Kavik is still out there. So I put together these these weird combinations of things that are, are out of the books. And and the issue was compared to everybody who does this stuff so well, these these guys are were comparably like .75 power. They just weren't up to the power level of the rest of the party because, like, there's this cool thing because this character, like, I look at a lot of the builds that people have. This is my 20th level powerhouse. And you look at it's like, how did he get past level 5? Yeah. He would not have survived. So I'm playing these characters that are, you know, not super power level, but they get to do all this interesting stuff in all these, like, the complete books that you never get to use. And I get to use them. And then you realize, comparatively, these are perfect NPC fodder. But as a player, you're just not getting to the finish line, right? And, and it's, it, it then ultimately added a, a twist that we put in that solved another issue that I talked about um, in, in the episode about the party where, you know, the, uh, the concern with disposable characters is they die and they leave all their stuff behind. Yeah. So the party gets paid where they win. So the idea was these guys are from, like, the outer plains somewhere. So when they die, like Elvis, they just go home and take the stuff with them. So all of a sudden, these... these Rotating characters aren't just dumping money on the party every week. Right? It's, I think that was my solution to it because I'd been on the other side, and that was, for me, that was a huge pain in the butt, especially as characters start getting up in levels mm. and those numbers start getting bigger. Uh, but with Caleb's character, what I remember is he had this character, and then all of a sudden, every like we go places, and there'd be like another copy of him. Like he was a, a sorcerer at first, if memory serves. Yep. And then, wait a minute. There's there's Caleb, but he's a paladin now, and there's Caleb, and he's like a uh, like a cleric or, or whatever. That as we go through, you'd keep seeing him in other like you'd see his face, like he had exi- like there were millions of them out there, like there was all these clones of him. Where did you come up with that idea? Because then it worked that when Caleb died, he'd come like all we'd have to do is change stats, gear, and classes, right? And everything else would be the same because it's just another. Not, not just another Caleb out there. Yeah. Um, so I think it might be good to talk just really briefly about the what we had a kind of agreed the world to be when we started, mm-hmm. and it was this idea of kind of um, like an adventure world where there were a bunch of there was a bunch of old stuff, and you guys were in kind of a isolated city, and you finally got to leave this isolated city that had been protected in out into the wider world. And kind of explore and be archaeologists in a way, or you know, kind of almost Indiana Jonesy yeah. style stuff, where you're exploring all this this ancient stuff. And as that kind of continued, where I've kind of the rabbit hole that I kind of fell down to down as a DM was there's a lot of like really terrifying old ancient things that you know are you know under some mountain somewhere that never should be disturbed, and you know you guys are kind of getting into them. And, and, and rousing them and, and 
discovering these things and you know there's all these cults that are you know secret and hidden that you're kind of uh, laying bare and so that idea really shifted the way that I was thinking about uh, the world to one where there's all these kind of malevolent hidden uncanny things so I, I really tried to mine the like kind of pulpy horror um, you know kind of paperbacks and 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 shows for ideas about things that were uncanny things that just didn't fit in the world that you had grown up in and part of that is the idea that you would see a doppelganger and just how weird it would be if you kept running into the same person again and again with no explanation so it was really kind of coming from a place of like this is a flavor thing that we could explore that would be just off-putting and kind of creepy <laughs> and it it also turned out to be kind of like a solution for you know a, a pc who maybe after a, a bunch of levels is kind of boring to play and if they get killed you know like oh well uh you know there's you, you can you can roll another one and that's interesting but like what if it what if you didn't what if you couldn't just like totally <laughs> make up you know like you know what what if there was something strange that you didn't fully understand that kept like almost reincarnating uh some aspect of of in this in this case it was the likeness of yep. the the character so you know you could get your mechanical you could scratch your different mechanical itches uh as a as a player but uh it was also kind of like not fully under your control and i just thought that that fit really well for a world where you know there was this kind of subtle dread uh all over there there were great moments of levity when when we and caleb would encounter another caleb like the one, the one that sticks out in my mind that was a nice little throwaway bit was um, a moment where we're on we're on a raft, we're on a boat trying to get out of this city, and there's two noblemen having a duel, and one of them is a Caleb, and he's winning the duel, and he stops because he sees himself on this raft, and the other guy gets up and just, Gah-ha! you know, and he get he basically was killed by Caleb by looking at Caleb. Okay, so it wasn't all all growing dread and horror all the time. Yeah, there's there's a good, like, it was appropriate with, like, the occasional good bit of just dark humor thrown in the way that, man, you better pay attention, Caleb, because that could have been you. (laughs) Oh, God, that really could have been me. Yep. Yeah. In, In a way, you killed yourself. Uh. Yep, there you go. That's, that's, we we can talk about how, what you've done to the fabric of reality later. (laughs) So, so thinking on that, like, having, having been in a campaign that ran the 1 to 20 gamut, having run a campaign that went around the 1 to 20 gambit, um, which for I think for is not as common of an experience as most people have because parties, most most players in a party don't have the cohesion to run the distance. Like things get in the way. We talked to Dale about how he couldn't be there for the second half of that campaign because the kids got older and life just happened. And we were very fortunate to have Caleb to come along and you know, a different piece to the puzzle, but one that still fit and let it go on to the end. So thinking on that, like, what were the big lessons from playing from 1 to 20 that you could then take into to DMing that let you run successful campaigns? Yeah. Um, I, I needed to learn a lot as a player. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. That, that um, I, I think I made some character choices in that campaign that seemed obvious to me uh that weren't to other people and you know frankly i wasn't making i wasn't making character choices that were that that made uh the game enjoyable for others 
So, you know, when you DM, then it's a little more obvious when other people do that. Uh, so that that was, it helped me to learn now when I when I am a, I'm a player in a 5th in a edition campaign, I, I definitely take that into account. And I just, over time, I think the reason why I play is, is much less about the mechanics of a game and much more about the, the opportunity to kind of make pretend and role play. And so that, I think, is a great kind of... It, when, when people play the game for that reason, I th well, let's just put it this way. I guess you could, you could say no matter what reason it is, when people are aligned, when the party is aligned with the reason mm -hmm. that they play, it makes it so much easier for a DM. But also it makes it easier to hold together for 20 levels, too. Yep. You don't have to be in like total lockstep, right? Like Some people are just motivated by different, different aspects, and it's the G DM's job to some extent. To, to make sure that everyone is 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 getting what they what they came for out out of the campaign, but it is I, I think if you if you have people who are like too far away, it, it just really is a challenge. So you kind of gotta be, agree. You gotta have some like what do they call them a priori agreements? Yes. <laughs> before you start, and that really goes a long way to to keeping things rolling. So thinking back, and like I have a weird problem as a DM. Because there's, there's like everybody understands the value of a good DM. Because you don't have a DM, you can't play. And so what all everybody's like, it was a great session. It's like, listen, I have an ego. I am awesome. I come from a long line of awesome. My father, my grandfather, great grandfather. I get it. We're <laughs> yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I am not the second coming of anything, right? Like there's always, like there, there's points where I have, I know I've had to have just soiled the bed along the way. And as, as you've gotten to, to run a thing from 1 to 20, I just, I'm curious as to where, and it's, I think it's good for people to hear that, yes, none of us are immortal. Like, eventually, you know, uh, Connor McLeod is going to cut off our heads at some point. Where, like, what failings did you see when I was running a game that might have then influenced you to not make those mistakes when you ran a game? Oh, wow. Oh, boy. Are you seeking honest feedback? Yes, yes, I had, like I, I got I got a lot of padding. I can take it, and I'm, like it's one of those things that I, if that was an issue, I don't want that to still be an issue today as I run. Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, honestly, Eddie, I, it it's it's tough. Well, part of all, it, it's been a long time. Right? Yes. It's been like over a decade, but um, fifteen years. Yeah, fifteen years. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. But uh, I mostly now, at least, and you know, maybe time has worn the edges a little softer. I don't know. But I have a lot of reverence for the work that you did because uh, I love that. For me, when I think about a campaign, a campaign setting that that you run, your focus seems to be a lot on characters. Like NPC characters are multifaceted. They have depth. They are not just bad guys or good guys. And when you put interesting people into a story, interesting things happen. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, I think. Um, I think you know you did such a great job, and it's something that I I always I, I don't feel like I've ever come even close to your equal. I guess maybe if there was one thing thinking about a specific NPC, are we going to talk about Freddy? Freddy. Freddy will get yes. his own episode someday. I had yes. to I had to figure Freddy was going to show up at some point. So I mean, Freddy um, I think was a great NPC. Here's here's where you did Freddy so well, and that is uh, the party couldn't kill Freddy. Which is important because 
um, they had to put up with Freddy and live with Freddy. <laughs> and what they found was that sometimes Freddy could be beneficial. Yes. Sometimes Freddy could sabotage the party. And it was never entirely clear which Freddy you get. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so I think that was nice only because... Um, the, the reason that it was nice is because it wasn't within the PC's power to kill Freddy. And if and, and I feel like um, and I know this from personal experience, but <laughs> as a player, <laughs> this is because true. I tried. Yes, uh, you did. <laughs> but I, from that perspective, um, I, I think he, he was a great character. However, uh, I also think it felt like a little bit like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where like the people who could kind of see through Ferris Bueller, he saw that he was tricking everyone else, yeah. saw that the rules didn't apply to him. Saw that you know he was kind of like an antisocial jerk, but everyone loved him anyway. L life didn't feel fair. Yes. And and you know you, you kind of had to make a choice, right, as to whether or not you were like, all right, yeah, that's really weird and and not cool. And you know what, I got my own life, and I'm not gonna you know like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just I'm not gonna think too much about that because I got my own shit going on. Or you fall down the rabbit hole of like trying to destroy this person for the sake of justice. Yes. Which in the end, like just like in Ferris Bueller, ends poorly for yep. those characters who like can't escape and just need to, need to accept the fact that like, look, there's this person out there that who the rules don't apply for, and you know, like you're just better off if you just live your life. I, so my I, character failed that test. I had never, I had never put your cleric into the role of Edward R. Rooney, teen of students. <laughs> uh, like I, when I think of him, and I think of the NPCs, there was there was a rule for those, and that was used sparingly, because a mm. little bit goes a very long way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, that's a great mm, note. But that mm, character was Edward R. Rooney. Like mm, that's how mm, I conceptualized mm. him. Was like <laughs> kind of a curmudgeonly like Irish Catholic priest. You know, yep. could be very like you know, very charismatic, very very kind, lyrical, you know, and, and interesting. But would slap your hand oh, with yeah. a ruler. Would absolutely would. And I don't know that I played it well enough to convey that. Uh, let's say nuance. Maybe that's a little too uh, generous to that uh, character. But I, I have heard the way that you have described that character before as like failing some alignment test. Well, no, the, the moral <laughs> compass that did not point yeah. north. This character never was supposed to be the the moral compass for that campaign. And not that, from my perspective. And that was and that was my like maybe that was that was a failing. Me, you're like you're playing the good aligned cleric. You're supposed to be the moral compass. It's like there's lots of ways you can play a good aligned cleric. Um, I was I was also more surprised that when you weren't the moral compass, Dale the barbarian was. Oh no, that's perfect. And it it no. it, it, it it was a lot of flavor because it forced me to stay on my toes. But I remember. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing that, and occasionally I would poke the bear just to make sure the compass still pointed north. It's like, <laughs> yes, yes, it does. Uh, no, the barbarians are great for, for standing up for what is right, getting mad at things that aren't fair, you know, like that really shouldn't be that way for injustices and things like that. Yeah. I think barbarians are great moral compasses <laughs> when they're truly good. When they are truly good. Um, I, I think of that, and I think it was looking at the groups and looking at the way the groups played, and I... I always come back to Drew because I know he came to the table for different reasons, but when you look at those groups and how they played and you could see different reasons why people came to the table, for me there was always, I guess I kind of felt fortunate because it was like with, the, with one notable exception who's competing against you as the DM, everybody else kind of wanted to experience the story and, and were helping to write that story. 
So when when I think of that, it, the, the goal was always to try to you know be collaborative. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was ever a situation where you had to deal with a player who just couldn't handle the situation. Like when I when I talk about Drew, and I know you haven't heard the episode because it I posted it yesterday, but there were two instances in. Uh, three instances in the campaign I ran where Drew kind of had a breakdown. Because mm. the first one is when we had the... Uh, comparable to the Harry Potter, um, you know, Order of the what, Order of the Phoenix, where you're hiding in this little place. You know you've got the Blade Singer and her people hunting you. And I, I, I broke a rule, which I guess it, it worked. You can do it as a player, you can do it as a DM, but... The idea is you, you can't run the same gag twice because people will see it coming. And I talked about the SEAL Team 6 thing earlier, and then I did it again as a DM coming after the party because they've hidden successfully all this time. Well, the bad guy tracked them because the party had not been making sure they weren't being tracked. They just, we haven't been found yet, so we must be okay. And we have that moment where you had the magic armor, and I sent in the bodyguard with the shield of disintegration to take care of the armor because nobody could hit you because you had an armor class of 40-something. Yeah. Like, this was the solution to the armor. Drew proved to be a giant pain in the butt, so instead I hit him, and it disintegrates the shield. Or, the shield disintegrates the bow. And it's this moment where, all of a sudden, Super Archer guy just breaks. And, and dare I say, gets grumpy, because, like, now, like, he built himself as a, I do one thing, I'm a super specialist. One monkey wrench, okay, it's broken. Despite the fact... Dead archers all over the place, bows all over the floor. Somebody had to tell him to pick up a bow and get back in the fight. And God help me, I think I might have been the one to break the fourth wall and say, just pick up a damn bow and start fighting again. Um, you know, we had the one where he had to become a chosen one and he had to go up against the lion. And, you know, it, it can only take damage from... It takes one damage unless you hit it with bludgeoning. And so he just kept reshooting his arrows, doing one damage at a time until he did all 150. And then you had the... <laughs> You had in the final encounter where he's doing all this damage with his bow because he built himself to be this machine gun, and he gets dominated. It's like, well, what's his command? Throw your bow off the mountain. Fails the second saving throw and just yahtzees that bow off the mountain. And then somebody has to tell him, you're, you're a jaunter. You move around. Go climb down and get the bow and the dimension door back up here, right? Where where there was that, you know, it's it's like if you're a, Swiss, if, like a Swiss Army knife with four little gadgets will always be a straight blade, in my opinion. Right. Was there ever a time when any of us just had that collapse? Now, I, I, I set aside the, the going up against the vampire looking at wiped because, you know, the Department of Defense regrets to inform you your sons are dead because they were stupid. Right. But other than that, was there a, a breakdown moment somewhere? I, I think, you know, um, I can't think of anything right, right off the top of my head where it felt... I, I think that there are always going to be points of time where, you know, a character might be, be or a, a player might be upset, you know, at how things turn out. And a lot of that, um, to me, the, the question is, is a little bit about, you know, as a DM, did I approach this in a way where I was, uh, where, where the goal was to kind of like, put the player into a position where they they didn't have a lot of options or what they were normally doing didn't work oh yeah here's one so you guys were like first level i think this was this i think this is the one to 20 campaign 
I, I can't quite remember which if there if this was a different campaign or not, but it was very early on when I was DMing, and you were first level. I remember that distinctly, and uh, you had caught the eye of some kidnappers or something like that. There, there's some kind of like people, some some bad men, who uh, ended up capturing you all, and uh, you fought valiantly, but it was not a fight that you were ever supposed to win, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that that is not part of the implicit agreement <laughs> yeah. that that the DM has with the players, especially at level one, um, with no warning at all. And so uh, the whole the whole group was pretty pissed at me, and was were, were unhappy, and you know kind of trying to find some way out and everything like that. And I I can't quite remember how it all went down. Like I think you might have actually been able to like weasel out in some way. But obviously, I had had a contingency for if you were if you were defeated because yep. that was kind of what I had expected to happen. But that wasn't very fair to you guys to to put you in that position without any kind of way, any signal for the for the players to understand what was happening. And so, and I also think uh, I would definitely have run that more like uh, straight faced. And at the time, I think I was kind of gleeful. Um, Things were working. Yes. Almost like part of an act, <coughs> like you know, like I'm the evil DM. But that's really not what you guys needed right then, and that, so that I, was uh, that I was do, not a good choice. I do remember that, and it was, it was the first one you ran. I remember because it was my my dwarven wizard was involved in that, and I think the lesson from that isn't that you can't do that, but you can't do it right away. Right there has yeah. to be there has to be that rapport and trust built into. That the DM isn't just doing this to get us, blah. Like you've there's there's proven out with the gaming history that there's going like there's a story behind this. There's a reason behind this. This is not to punish the players. This is for something larger. Uh, and I think considering not every player at the table would have gotten that regardless, uh, but it's like looking back on it. There's yeah that lesson is you have that rapport, have that trust, demonstrate that through you know ongoing story that you don't do it. At first level of the first campaign, had that happened to the second campaign, I think there would have been more understanding because we know that this is going to lead somewhere. Yeah, well, I mean, this is how inexperienced I was. The reason that it happened when it did was because I didn't believe in myself enough as a DM to think that I could pull off a situation where you all were actually captured if I allowed you to advance in level too far. Because I, I didn't feel like I had the rule set knowledge enough in comparison with the player base. That, by the way, is probably more of a specific problem for 3.5. Fifth edition, I think, is a little bit of a leveler in terms of, like, the... Mm, it's just it's just more forgiving. The rule set is more forgiving. It's much more about, like, fostering creativity and DMing and stuff like that. So that may be a, a problem of the past for the most part. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's why I did it then. It, it just... It really sh demonstrated how far away I was from understanding um, what the needs of the of the party were right then. I prioritized my own insecurity instead. So it was it was definitely a learning experience for all of us because I think that the players also need to understand with with new DMs that there's you know there's a learning curve. Like we're not going to you know we can't expect that. And sometimes players will rush into the players will rush into that with the whole. Oh, I, I this is awesome! Like I, I get to play now, and then 
not realizing that if you just railroad right over the DM, then you don't get to play anymore. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, dealt with, I've dealt with that with some modules where I, I don't think anything I've done has, has, has broken it, but we've run into situations with the DM who's running the module where... As, as we like to say, somebody will grab the fork and stick it in the electrical socket. And I don't do that. So we'll go through these encounters where other members of the party die. So I gain a disproportionate amount of experience points. So that the module is built on this party progressing and not dying. But then we'll mm. jump levels and it, it causes us to get to situations where the module will say, the party should have been able to accomplish no more than 5 out of 8 of these things. And we'll have hit 8 out of 8 and there's no, there's no working for that. Hey, Eddie, this is a great opportunity to ask you yes. about XP progression. Yes. As a DM, the longer that I DM, the less I like XP, experience points. I think um, I almost feel like a, a milestone or a benchmark way of progressing characters is more uh, interesting and less like prone to that type of weirdness. Because the, 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 then you start playing the numbers game. Uh, I wonder what you think. From I, I think once again you, if you have good players, it works because I've met I'm I'm heard, pretty sure I could be wrong, that in some Pathfinder like the Pathfinder Adventures where you you play in the Pathfinder League, that's how it works. Is every three adventures you gain a level, right? So you're not you're not running up against the numbers. You don't have this the accidental catapult because right. of the disproportionate amount of XP. Right. Um, I I think it it could be better and it could make the system as a whole better because then it's. It's not, uh, like, in essence, instead of being Dungeons and Dragons, right, it's Goblins and XP, right? You're, you're not doing that, and I think you you could do it, but it's, like any rule that's going to come from outside the book, I think the party, like, the players need to be aware of this ahead of time. They need to agree on it, and then you can implement it. And it works if people are there for the story and not just the mechanics, right? It comes back to why we play. Um, I, I can think of some people who... It absolutely would not have worked for, and some people it absolutely would have, because you at that point it also takes away the the oh god it's going to take us forever to hit the next level, right? You you now have that progression and you realize what it is, and it doesn't necessarily I would just say too it doesn't necessarily need to be tied to the number of sessions or encounters or anything like that. I think um, one of the one of the nice things that a DM can do I mean you you, you don't need to tell the players you know no. that. This is, this is the level, and you might not even know, but, like, especially after something goes particularly well for the party, they do something, you know, if it's about the right time that yep. you're thinking about, you can kind of reward it with a uh, level up. And it feels still earned then, but it isn't, like, mechanistic. It's not like, oh, you missed it by 5 XP next time, you know, yeah. or, or the other way, you know, like, we took out the whole fleet and suddenly we jumped 10 levels. Yes, you know, like that's, yes, yes. That's dumb. <laughs> like, why would, as a DM, I'd just be like, no, no, that's not happening. Because it doesn't, it doesn't even, it's not even fun for yep. the players at that point. Like, sec weirdly, 2nd Edition had a kind of control for the too much XP thing, that if you do something nutso and you gain a gajillion XP points, um, you're automatically capped at 2 level, and then you can go halfway up to the next level. Okay. And that's where it is. So you can't. So the catapult and slingshot effect don't occur. All right. Uh, yeah, we're coming up on an hour. So do you have any any final parting thoughts? As you know, if you mm -hmm. so you want to be a DM. So you want to be a DM, Eddie. I have heard you say before in previous podcasts that uh, nobody wants to DM because everyone wants to play, and I have to strongly disagree with that. Really? I do. Yes. Because I think that there is a type of person who does like to DM. 
And that is the type of person who, oh, maybe prefers to have some more control in their life. They might, you know, be, uh, you know, kind of interested in, in having things the way they like it. Uh, and there might be some personality traits around that that I think, yeah. um, you know, that's the type of person who actually kind of really does enjoy putting in extra work to, you know, have that opportunity to um, kind of envision a whole world the way that they would like it. And so I think if you're the type of person, like, you know, if that's the reason why you're doing it, um, that's fine and good. And, and, you know, I definitely had to learn the hard way. You can't just, um, like, it, it, the campaign can't just be on rails because the best stuff happens when players think outside the box or do something that you didn't expect. And, and that is, like, I, I, don't, I don't even think that that's, like, hyperbole. Like, oh, no. The, the throwaway sessions have, have usually caused the most, under, like, the party was a throwaway session. Drew and I going through the Frost Giant Temple was a throwaway session, right? When these throwaway sessions happen, they usually, like, there was one where we're trying to finish a module, but we, we were missing a player. AJ was running this, and we went into a Coliseum fight just to, to have something to do because ultimately we're not going to get enough experience points to do anything crazy. And I'd, I'd been building up, as we're fighting through this last bit, you had two chaotic evil groups of drow fighting each other, and... Uh, like these Baylors keep showing up like 5% of the time. And my goal was I had a spell that can stun them for one round where they were going to make the saving throw, but they dropped their sword. I wanted the, the plus one Vorpal longsword. And <laughs> somebody kept killing them before I could do that, and then they kept blowing up and destroying the swords. So in the Colosseum fight, we have a throwaway thing. We have this aspect of Orcus shows up. And Orcus's powers are basically tied to his wand. So right before him was the Baylor that somebody else once again blew up. So as my turn, the initiative in Orcus shows up, and I wanted the sword, but now I can get his wand. And I hit him, and he dropped the wand, and I got the wand. And now there was this, this once again, this, how did that possibly happen? And then AJ at the end, like, you think I'm going to let you use this? Like, I have no intent of using it. It's like, what? My character has a bar back in the main city. I'm just putting this over the bar. <laughs> this is just awesome. And I just remember him staring at me because, one, he thought this was going to break everything, and then... This was just just to have bragging rights. It's like, of course, this is what this, that's absolutely what this was. Right. So that's a great example, right? Of of a of of how something totally the DM did not envision that was was really sweet and cool. So build. So as a, if you're starting out as a DM, build your world. I think I maybe tend to ruminate a little more than other people on you know whatever is the thing that i enjoy in life and so like you know you can go deep on your lore of your world and everything like that and that's totally fine as long as you can navigate it during the game and find what you need but don't force like leave some blank map areas on your map because the that 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 balance of having things thought up for your players but also willing being willing to allow to let them lead you and then responding to it and and playing off one another that's where you really make your make your 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 kind of like bones as a dm as a yeah. good dm it can't just be all one of the party or or the dm it's got to be that interplay between the two and if you can do that then you're you're in for a really fun time all right my the last thing before we go and I, i've mentioned during the party that like my DM Emeritus moment, we're hearing people I never saw talk about that event, which 
which blew my mind. If there's anything that would take second, and you were a part of this, and I remember it because I, I giggled so much I lost it at the table. One of the things I'd done is I'd started building out my own pantheon, right? And we had Joe Day, the chaotic good deity that, that was dealt. And you were dealing with his cleric, Malcolm, who was another one of those wonderful NPCs in my book. And I remember because we were like, Joe Day would come up a lot, and you're finally, you're flipping through like the complete divine. It's like, which book is this guy in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was one of those, like, it had been so ingrained that you, you thought it was in, in a printed book. And I, I, I remember I couldn't stop smiling for the rest of the day because it's like, I'm, I have told my story and ingrained this so well that it's just taken, it just, just, it's, it's automatically assumed it, it was printed somewhere and it is a thing. And for me, that, that tickled me so much, still does today. Uh, all right, well, this has been the Exodus of Magic podcast, uh, episode 10, so you want to be a DM. This is Dungeon Master Eddie with his friend Dungeon Master Tom. Thank you for, for making the drive, because it's you know an hour, more than an hour away to come sit down and spend this time. Um, it is much appreciated. Uh, thank you, everybody else, and uh, we will see you for episode 11. <laughs>